0: Hello and welcome to On the Pulse. This week we're talking about industry and industrial strategy.
1: Yeah, this might be a bit unrelated, but I just yesterday night it's 9 a.m. now, uh, and yesterday night I went to a careers event at my department, philosophy, where 10 people um, spoke about their paths after they finished their philosophy degree here at LSE, and I have to tell you this is one of the most depressing things that I've done. Like I'm still a bit, you know, I yeah I still feel bad about this and. In my mind there's a very logical connection to industrial strategy I'm but I'm sure I, that we
0: were gonna get there. At we some were
1: point. gonna get there. I just wanted to put this out there because basically these people two people moved into finance, they're making a great deal of money, one guy moved into law, and the rest of the people was just like moving in and out of jobs and now they're working in the civil service on Brexit, which is also very depressing. So it wasn't a hopeful message. And then yesterday when I got home from the pub, because I had to go to the pub after this meeting, of course. That's how depressing it was. That's how depressing it was. I read this article on the Financial Times, which said that the extra funding for STEM subjects, STEM topics in higher education in the UK, might come at the cost of the arts at universities here. There's my link. There's my bridge. Because this extra funding for STEM subjects, that is one of the parts of the UK's industrial strategy, And I'm really interested in how this affects us on a more personal level. So I'm wondering what you think about this. Yeah, I mean,
0: I'm fine. I I do a BSc (laughs) so government and economics STEM subjects should be fine. Yeah, I mean, it's not something that I've come across before with the funding of higher education and sort of these different tiers. The thing that I'm most aware of in terms of Britain's industrial strategy is really it's very high profile failures because that's th- these are the sort of things that catch the news right so recently the town where i'm from swindon has lost honda which is one of its biggest employers and that's put the risk or put the jobs of what 3500 people at risk immediately and then and then hundreds of people sort of in supplementary industry right um, and we've seen things like with um, carillion with uh, Tata steel in port talbot and uh, with the prospects of Brexit looming, we're probably quite likely to see a couple of larger, high-profile uh, sort of industry failure.
1: So in the case of Honda, what I understood from the coverage um, of the closure of the Honda factory or plan was that there wasn't so much a direct link with brexit it well, might be said or yeah. so they said it was a bit unclear but one thing that was very clear from the statements made by experts was that government policies surely didn't help surely had an yeah. influence on this and specifically the lack of funding for electric cars in the uk and i'm really confused by this because it seems like we know that that's a booming business and it's going to be for a while why would the uk not
0: f- yeah no this is really interesting actually coming back to your point about um, brexit and, and so the UK state not helping. I found it quite interesting my MP from home um, in the debate on this actually ended up saying that um, we should rejoice because Wiltshire's economy is, is doing tremendously well at the moment, which I thought was a slightly ironic touch but even he did concede that that what the government's doing and with Brexit at the moment really is hampering industrial strategy. But coming back to what you said about why Britain isn't really investing in electric vehicles, it's clearly hurting Britain's economy now but what I found quite curious I've, I've read um, The Entrepreneurial State by Mariana Mazzucato, it's is the idea that the state really, in a lot of cases, does the groundwork, right? It it takes these projects and researches them when they're not profitable and then allows the private sector to take them over when they are profitable. So, like, take the iPhone, GPS, touchscreens, the sort of computing capacity for a phone that size, weren't all immediately profitable things, but. After the US Defence and and, and NASA and other um, organisations did that research, the private sector was then sort of able to run with them. So I'm not entirely critical of the UK's approach to electric vehicles and sort of green energy in that respect because... It seems to become an increasingly profitable sector, so maybe it is time for the private sector to pick this up.
1: Okay, so what you're saying is, it makes sense that the UK wouldn't invest in this because what the government should be doing with its industrial strategy and its state aid to industry is pushing these industries that are that are about to be born or were just born and still need some of that kindergarten aid. Yeah,
0: exactly. It's um, yeah, it's it's helping those things which um, venture capitalists aren't really into. Mm. Into investing in yes because the yeah this is the future of our technology right um but if if it's too high a risk for even the riskiest investors to go and um invest in the state really should be using its its unprecedented purchasing power and research power to make sure that this sort of stuff gets done.
1: Hmm. So this is what the book you mentioned. That's what the book proposes, doesn't it?
0: In a sense, yes. It. it it sort of proposes taking the state from being perceived as this sluggish bureaucratic machine which is there to facilitate markets into one which is a lot more um, dynamic right one that makes markets itself and, and one that can also benefit when the markets it makes flourish so uh, as we saw with the with the example of sort of iPhones and touchscreens and stuff, the US state really hasn't benefited aside from the sort of employment that Apple has given for that, right? Apple's tax is in various countries across the world, right? Its production is in predominantly China, but all of the tech that the US has Research it hasn't really got its dividends for that and and i think the book looks into that and says that the government really also should be benefiting from the things that it helps to create
1: that makes sense one one thing that i don't i'm not sure about when you said the state should invest where venture capitalists don't is there's probably a reason venture capitalists don't which is usually that the project at hand is a bit unclear or it's not sure where it's gonna go and i wonder if it's ethical for a state to invest in things that might not give any return, given that they do so with money of the taxpayer, and not private money.
0: Yeah, I think this is an interesting point. The thing is, to an extent, this is done with a democratic mandate, right? These these states do run with industrial strategies in their manifestos, it might not always be its, it's sort of investment portfolio. Um, but I guess perhaps being slightly more <laughs> on the statist end of this, I'm I'm fairly relaxed about states choosing sectors and technologies to invest in, providing that they don't sort of pick individual firms as winners, because that that for me is when the sort of ethical lines become a bit more problematic in the sense that if the state were to choose, for example, Apple as, as someone that it would invest in, that's not something that I'm comfortable with.
1: So things like New York City trying to get an Amazon, yeah, spending a lot of effort and money, and for that matter, uh, 20, 30 different cities in the US, spending all that effort and money to try to lure Amazon, that's something that you would object to?
0: I'd I'd say so, certainly, because that that doesn't seem to be pushing the boundaries of our innovation. That seems to be Mm -hmm. a a sort of tax-cutting policy or or sort of trying to make one's own city attractive to hyper-rich corporations, which doesn't seem to be a particularly progressive or particularly uh, research-led kind of uh, approach, right?
1: Yeah, on the one hand, it doesn't. But I think if you do compare, say it's a a trade-off, which which usually it's not, and I'm not going to assume that it really is. But suppose there's a trade-off. Either a local or national authority can invest in this project that a venture capitalist wouldn't give money to, or they can try and lure Apple, Amazon, eBay's headquarters to their state. In the first case, there's no certainty that they will get any result from it. In the second case, you know that there will be a certain amount of jobs created. So, in the end, what we're really talking about, if you do see it as a trade-off between these two, which is, again, unfair, but say we have to choose, as a self-professed socialist, this is not an easy choice, is it?
0: Yeah, no, you're right, because I guess I, I guess it's the short-term against long-term horizons in that respect, that, that um, allowing uh, all of these companies to invest in cities and, and stuff like that and, and set up their is extraordinarily beneficial for these places in the short term in some respects. Obviously, looking at the, the problematic stuff that we, we spoke about, um, so with was Sarah Minervis and stuff uh, the other day, notwithstanding, right? Um, whereas in the long term, it seems perhaps to me that anyone can invest in a company when it's all been set up and it's creating these jobs, right? But the state has a unique position to invest in areas of research where very little has been done already,
1: yeah, so I guess the point that the state isn't as vulnerable to these market pressures um, makes it more autonomous when it comes to investment in R&D and, and new, new industries. But I'm, I'm not convinced that this is certainly the way to go. I feel like perhaps there is room to also appreciate the sluggish bureaucratic character of the state. I know that sounds weird, but there's probably significant benefits to the state being that way and not being a major player in industry but again I would have to dive into this to see exactly how these benefits would play out against things like um, the proposal by Mariana Matsukato.
0: yeah I'm interested in this uh, maybe a more traditional style of investment that has been talked about especially a lot in the UK since um, the election of Jeremy Corbyn as Labour leader and stuff like that, is the nationalisation of certain industries, which I guess plays into the that old style of state investment. I'm curious, where do you come down on this? Say that the nationalisation of rail industry has been a pretty hot topic in some circles in UK politics um, in the last four or five years.
1: Yeah, it certainly has been in my country and in the Netherlands too. Um, interestingly, yesterday there were two things that were kind of related to this, because first there was this the national Royal Mail Service was privatized a couple of years ago, just like the rail services were. And now they're they're back to a monopoly because there were only two companies left that were doing this and the biggest bought the smaller one. And so there's a monopoly again. And this led people to say, well, really, what was the whole point of privatizing this? Because it's been a mess and we're back to a monopoly situation that no one wants to be in and that's not beneficial to anyone. Secondly, yesterday was announced that the Netherlands will Increased their share in KLM Air France, the airline, which equally backs the question, why did we privatize so much when in the end it seems to be working against us? I mean, I don't know. I think th- there's certainly a problem of, of privatization if you're not in an actual free market economy, because the idea would be that it would work if you were in an actual free market economy, but we're not. And so that's where I think I'm struggling to make sense of this issue because in theory, if you read the theory of privatization, it all makes complete sense. But in the reality, in my country, at least privatization has been for most of these industries has been really really bad and for most of the consumers it's been bad and so i i can't i, f- I struggle to formulate like an ideological stance on this simply because i think we haven't seen the best privatization happening and we haven't seen the best nationalization happening
0: that's interesting also i guess coming from the perspective of a remaining eu country as well because what what seems to be talked about a lot in britain is the the state aid rules that and them sort of hampering the nationalization of industry but that clearly doesn't seem to be entirely the case right
1: no I think these state aid rules I mean these are regulations to prevent these races and subsidies so countries racing like people like countries are, are doing tax races with the lowest taxes so that they're, they're luring companies into their into their countries the same would happen if you wouldn't have rules about subsidy about state aid uh, because companies would surely move to Ireland if Ireland decides to give more subsidy than than the Netherlands, etc. But in the UK, I think this argument doesn't have as much force because UK state aid had, has been very low it's been below average so in order to make this argument convincingly it should have been above or on average and then you can see if really it hampers the economy of the state as much as some people on the left would like it to do and thereby be a justification for for brexit
0: yeah I guess we haven't we haven't even touched the ceiling let alone a sort of know know exactly what what's holding us back in that respect. I know that there was a report by the IPPR recently which said that um, uh, European Union state aid law sort of restricts um, what nationalised industry can do, but it by no means sets up the barriers to nationalisation in the first place, right? So, nominally, the UK could nationalise these services, but it would have to compete as a nationalised service in the same way that Nationalised Rail all across Europe does. Yeah, And this sort of brings me, I, I guess, to talking about what, labour policy has been at the moment because it's probably been some of the more interesting developments. I know that we've talked about the entrepreneurial state and um, Mariana Matsukato, who wrote it, uh, put in the foreword, I think, for her second edition. She listed a number of Labour MPs, um, or former Labour MPs now, um, Chuka Muna, um being one of them as an inspiration for the book. We went and spoke to another one of those, who is currently one of the shadow industrial strategy ministers.
1: Yeah, we talked uh, with her about um, industrial strategy, what her plans would be, how she envisions... Industrial strategy for Britain's future. And this was, uh, we should note, this was last week on the day of like an important Brexit debate. So we were very happy to get a short while with uh, this MP.
0: So this is us speaking to Chion Wara, the MP for Newcastle upon
2: Tyne Central. So Mariana uh, Matsukata and I first met on a uh, panel talking about uh, climate change and what needed to uh, happen, how we needed to, um, what the impact of climate change would be. And where we found a really strong agreement um, was that, you know, so my background as an engineer, I worked in engineering uh, for 20 years before coming into parliament. And um, I see climate change as, yes, a huge challenge and it's obviously caused by the first industrial revolution of which, ultimately by the first industrial revolution of which, um, you know, Newcastle, the northeast where I grew up was the heart of it and almost literally powered it in the invention of uh, steam and other engines uh, which are all um, carbon based. So um, so it's a challenge, but it's also a huge um, opportunity because um, the transformation, the transition from a carbon base to a carbon zero or net zero economy is a huge opportunity for technology and to revitalize our manufacturing and our industry. Bec- it, you know, it doesn't have to, as I think some, some, think it, some people, I'm not gonna, specify who seem to think it means going back to some sort of agarian um, paradise whereas I think it means going forward to a uh, a sustainable industrial economy and so I think yeah I, th- so I remember saying on this panel that we needed a revolution uh, and second you know industrial revolution to get there and that was exactly Mariana's uh, vision, if you like, that we need to um, we need a, 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 an industrial revolution and also a, one where the state takes an entrepreneurial and active role. so I think in terms of inspiration, we certainly both inspired each other because you know, I, I, I think we need a, we need a strong manufacturing and industrial sector which is based on clean tech and and, and a circular um, economy. And um, a more it manfa- managed sustainable manufacturing sector. And I think Mariana's vision, which is really important, is that the public sector, the state, has a really important role. This is not just about the private sector. The public sector has a really important role to playing that, both in terms of setting that vision. So you know, one of our missions in our in um, the Labour Party's industrial strategy is to decarbonize our um, energy production by 60% by 2030 but also the public sector can play it can can be a real play a real role in having the policies and having the um, you know the, the in driving in, uh, the private sector to meet those goals and so i think it was a you know we both had um, and we still do you know have a have a have a com- compatible uh, vision of what the future should mean in terms of both the private and the public sector in terms of sustainability and in terms of addressing climate change.
1: Yeah so one of the things she writes in the book if I remember correctly is that the public sector should move away from this idea of just maybe nudging or a little bit facilitating innovation and really take a leading
2: role. Why is that
1: so important? Why can't private sector do this
2: well, I think that's a really it's a, it's a really important question and I think you know one of the one of the things that I think we are realizing more now than say if you'd come to talk to me even two or three years ago and where Marianne I was one of the first to realize was the kind of orthodoxy that um, the private sector could public sector bad that the only thing the public sector could do was either get out of the way of the private sector or imitate the private sector you know that had um, that sort of that had many had many uh, consequences for our state and for our economy not all of which were obvious but because the public sector felt um, if you like um, unsure of itself felt that it had to be secondary if you like to the private sector that's one of the reasons why we had we had so little effective regulation of our financial sector we had the financial crisis it's one of the reasons why we didn't have an industrial strategy because the term industrial strategy wouldn't be even a a labour government found that difficult Mm. to use that term and certainly that the, the Thatcher government beforehand wasn't going wasn't going to. So um so it's um to to the reason it's really important is that we have to have confidence in you know the ability of the public sector to lead, the state to lead in the interests of citizens. Uh, and also it's it's important because when you talk about nudging it and, and I worked so my last job before coming into Parliament was working for Ofcom, which was a, a light touch regulator and I will say it was a, it was quite it was hour, obviously I would say that perhaps, but it was quite a good light touch regulator in as much as um, we, ha- we ended up with one of the best um, and most competitive in these costly uh, tele broadband uh, economies, broadband set infrastructures in the world. So that's now changed, and we are now behind it most most of the rest of the world. But as a light touch regulator, it deliberately set out to avoid, say, regulating the internet and these kind of emerging technologies. And that's one of the reasons why they're now so. Um, I would argue that they're now so consolidated and, um, in some respects, monopolistic. So by using sort of nudging and light touch regulation you are not going to transform the competitive playing field in the direction that that you want it to and so by having a more active and more interventionist public sector though there are dangers associated with that and Marianne is very you know clear about about that as well by having a more interventionist public sector, you are more likely, you, or you have a, at least you have the capability to end up, I think, in a fairer situation where the um, the economy is more likely to work for, in the labour phase, for the many, because we've set it up, we've set up the playing field So Mari- in that way. So Mariana talks about the public sector being market-creating Creating markets, not just sort of nudging them around, so that they, you know, they, 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 are somewhat fairer, but but creating and constructing them, and I think that is really it's really important, and it means also that um, you know we shouldn't be afraid to say that this is in the interest of citizens and consumers, and the market does not always deliver the best outcomes for citizens and consumers.
1: Hmm. I'm interested in your point on fairness, because you've mentioned um, before in interviews and also on on your website, I think it says that you're committed to this inclusive growth. So Mm -hmm. if there's policy that's that's going to reform and revolutionize industry, it has to be inclusive. Hmm, How specifically do you think about this? What kind of policies would help?
2: Well, that's really good. That's a really good um that's a really good question again so you know what we've seen is i mean the figures and i think it was um it was Pic- sort of Piketty's book on uh capital had a lot of figures in it but you know generally we you know we are the least well, we are the least equal regionally the least equal country in the european union we had years of growth which has not been, and yet people are Poorer certainly for the last ten years that people are uh, haven't had a wage increase for uh, in ten years and the share of wealth that goes to employees as opposed to capital has reduced so so that's saying what we haven't had is inclusive growth so we want inclusive growth but your question was how do we achieve it well we need to make sure there's a number there's a number of policies um, we need to make sure for example. It, addressing some of the different sources of inequality, the regional inequality, we have said that we will have a national investment bank that's two hundred and fifty billion pounds over ten years, but that investment bank will be made up of a series of regional banks so we'll have regional decision making so to strengthen regional economies whereas whitehalls sort of decision making on investment always seems to end up with the investment being focused um, you know out in the in the center uh, so that yeah that's one example um, another example uh, in terms of um making uh, growth more inclusive is we talked about our um, diversity charters. In fact, if every sector would have to, would, the industry would come to have to come together to deliver a diversity charter which is based on the Women in Finance uh, diversity char- charter which was rolled out in the finance sector and that we have specific targets, specific measures, specific levels of accountability, so that can help address the the sort of low levels of diversity in certain in in many sectors. Um, we've also said that we'll have a national education service which education will be free at the point of consumption from the from the um, from the cradle to the grave. So that will um, address sort of some of the barriers to uh, both training and retraining, you know, which is a real issue Mm. in terms of having a more, better access to, if you like, the better jobs of the future. So I mean, you know, that's, that's a, that policy is a large, you know, is a large part of our industrial strategy, Mm. you know, which is, as as Jeremy says, look at, you know, creating an economy which works for the many, not the few, there's not one sort of, magic sort of policy that does it but we have a, a whole if you like suite of policies. We're also and I think this is this is actually really important, you know, um The government tends to talk about sectors like artificial intelligence, you know, or um, what's the other one they like for a lot, nanotechnology, as the sort of focus for its industrial strategy. And we are, you know, I'm an engineer. I'm very keen on new technologies, and we will certainly be supporting that. But we're also looking at the areas with really big employment, so like retail retail also needs to benefit from innovation and, and from um, increased productivity and that will mean higher wages in the retail, that should mean, should mean higher wages in the retail sector which will again help address uh, inequality. And then finally actually in a really big area is is um, unions. So where there are unions um, employees tend to be better paid um, and uh, there tends to be less, um, less inequality and that interestingly greater social mobility. So we need to support and help um, you know, a strong union organization, in, in particularly in the new and emerging sectors.
1: Do you foresee any difficulties with regards to unions? Um, because it has been argued that unions, um, some of them are very dependent on carbon-heavy industries, very linked to them. So do you see a communicative or... Ways of yeah, again you
2: know? that's a really interesting good question and we see um and in for you know for example uh, with the in the u.s with the, the green mm-hmm. new deal and some of the challenges some of the uh, response to of some of some workers groups and sometimes of some unions to uh trump's um <laughs> pronouncements on climate change etc um i think you know what unions? What unions want is long-term employment for their, for their, for their for who work them and they don't. You know, good unions, and you see in the UK where you've got, you know, the GMB uh, winning, winning against um, exploitative or in other employers in the courts. Unions want need want to reflect the employment needs of workers today, and staying it with obsolete sectors does not reflect or strengthen um, the employment opportunities for working people today. So then what it needs to be, and we're very clear about this, there needs to be um, a fair, or some people could say a just transition, you know, a fair transition which reflects um, which, which rather than, and I speak as a, as a Geordie, rather than a dumping people out of of industries such as um, mining and shipbuilding and steel, which were becoming less competitive, we need to transition to a world in which there are those job opportunities in the new and emerging technologies and um, people have the skills to access them.
1: Hmm. If, if you have time for one last question, I, sure, I yes, would like to ask... Uh, it's probably a difficult one, so if you to give a short answer, that's completely fine. We were just wondering, uh, but a no-deal Brexit mm, becoming more likely, um, all these policies that you've mentioned, they require some kind of revolution, like you've said. Um, if there's a no-deal <laughs> Brexit, I can imagine there has to be some se- sense of which policy or which area mm, should be prioritized, because there will be a lot of things that become more difficult like you've written as well, if there's a no-deal Brexit, mm-hmm. industry will be hit very hard, so you mm-hmm. might have to prioritise certain policies over others. Do, are there any areas that you think, um, you've mentioned uh, diversity, you've mentioned decarbonizing that require to be tackled first?
2: Well, I think, so I think, I mean, yeah, I don't accept your points that a no deal Brexit has become more likely even though i know in some ways it's true but i, I, I do hope in the fact we we're just uh, you know watching the debate in parliament right now um it is only an, it is a small minority of tory mps who think a no deal is acceptable I and mean, they shouldn't be able to hold the rest of parliament to hostage mm-hmm. and i still uh, hope believe that um, Parliament, uh, the sensible, reasonable people, m- members of Parliament, will find a way of, um, of you know, of making sure that we, that we leave the European Union on a, uh, you know, structured and sensible way. Uh, but I think, but but it certainly is. It's much more. It is more of a possibility than I would have thought. Possible uh, for, especially when the party in government is supposed to understand business and markets, which they clearly don't. Um, so, but I think to your question, what no deal Brexit will do will, will make everything harder. But as a progressive, indeed socialist party, we're not going to kind of um, uh, prioritise prioritize if you like one form of inequality over another mm. um, what we what we would do would be that i have to we'd have to have you know what we'd probably look at be looking at would be a obviously a severe shock to the economy and we would need to have the support in place uh for um for our industries and our uh, skills base and our jobs. So it probably would mean um, more emphasis on um, industrial strategy and skills and in the short term on uh, protections and and welfare support. Uh, But we would still need to be addressing all all the other causes of inequality as well.
1: So at this point in the interview, we decided we should probably leave because there was a, an important Brexit vote happening, like we said. But she was more than happy to talk to us about what the role of us would be in establishing this new uh, green economy for the future. What uh, do young people have to do or could they do?
2: What's clear is what, whatever, whatever the outcome of Brexit, and whenever we have an outcome to Brexit, which may not be, um, which may not be this week or, or this month, you know, what we're going... You know, it's particularly young people who um, who will be shaping the economy of the future, but also will have different opportunities than I and others had, need to be um, really active in uh, setting out a um, you know demanding the kind of economy which works across the board. For um, you know, people from all kinds of different backgrounds, etc. So supporting a uh, an economy which isn't just for a sh- narrow elite, but which is for everybody.
0: That's everything for this week. Thanks for tuning in. I've been Hayden.
2: I'm Fleur, and this
1: was On the Pulse.
0: You can check us out on a whole multiplicity of podcast providers. Now we are on Apple Podcasts, or on SoundCloud, Acast, Mixcloud and on Pulseradio.live.
1: And Spotify. I mean, this is big. Oh,
0: yes.